All right, let's go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're looking this morning at the love that God requires. Next week, as we finish up this section, it'll be the love that God hates. (laughs) How's that for a title, right? This week, it is the love that God requires. 1 John chapter 2. Uh, Let's uh, read from verse 7, then down to verse 11. Uh, He says, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment write I unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whether he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. All right, let's see if we can kind of introduce this topic a little bit. We've heard people say things like, oh, I just, I just love that hat, or, man, I really, I really love the old-fashioned baked beans. Anybody else love old-fashioned baked beans? Yeah, they don't like me, but I like them, all right? Maybe, oh, but, but, but mom, don't you realize that, that me and Becky, we love each other, right? Words can be like coins. Uh, they can be in circulation for so long that they, they begin to wear out. Uh, unfortunately, the word love, or uh, sometimes the way it's uh, used nowadays, it's love, right? Um, kind of losing its value. Uh, because it's so over overused. And it's difficult to understand how a person can use the same word to express love for their spouse as they do to display their feelings about baked beans. When the words are used that carelessly, they really mean very little or practically nothing. Uh, like a dollar, they've been devalued, Right? In verse 6, we see that we are to imitate Christ. The proof that we are indeed doing that, that we are indeed imitating Christ, is what is found in verses 7 through 11. Now, the life of Christ was one of self-sacrificing love. Uh, So the proof of imitating him is exhibiting his love uh, through us. Love is, is that which seeks the highest good of the one loved. And since the highest good is the will of God, then love is doing the will of God. Because we know God's love toward us, we we show God's love towards others. Now we're going to look at three, three things this morning. First of all, the love that God requires is new in emphasis. All right? It's new in emphasis. This is in verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The, uh, the old commandment is the word which, I have, uh, which ye have heard from the beginning. So it's, it's, they've had this commandment ye had from the beginning. Now from the time that they first heard the gospel message preached. The commandment to love one another is not new in time, 
but it's new in character. Uh, depth has been added to it. Uh, because of Jesus Christ, the old commandment to love one another has taken on new meaning. It's been expanded. The word commandment, again, like up in verse 4 of chapter 2, is precept. It's not commandment as we think of the Old Testament commandment, like the Ten Commandments. It's not that kind of commandment. It's all the, all the precepts and teachings and commands that Jesus gave while he was here on earth and as recorded in the New Testament. John is assuring his readers that the commandments or the precepts that he has given them is nothing new in quality. They had this commandment in front of them and with them constantly during their lives as saved individuals. So how is it possible for one commandment to stand head and shoulders above all the others? Well, when, if you were to take the time to go to Romans chapter 13, verses 8, 9, and 10, you would see how that love is the fulfillment of God's law. Remember that the, uh, all, all the Old Testament law and prophets hang on two huge hinges, so to speak. Um, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And if you could do that, you could keep the Old Testament law. Look at it this way. Parents must care for their children according to the law of the land, right? Child neglect is a serious crime. But how many parents have a conversation like this when the alarm goes off this morning? She might say, honey, you'd better get up and go to work. You don't want to be arrested, right? He says, yeah, well, you'd better get up and get the breakfast for the kids, get their clothes ready. The cops might show up and take us both to jail. She says, well, you're right. Boy, it's a good thing that... Uh, we have the law, or we'd stay in bed all day, wouldn't we? Now, it's doubtful that the fear of the law is a motivation behind earning a living and caring for your kids, right? Parents fulfill their responsibilities because they love each other and because they love their children. To them, doing the right thing is not a matter of law. Right? It's a matter of love. Uh, the commandment to love one another is the fulfillment of God's law in that same way. So, so the commandment to love one another is, is new in emphasis. It is one of the most important commandments Christ gave us. Uh, it is to love one another as I have, as I have loved you, he says. And you know, you're, not to, uh, you're not to act as if you love them. All right? You're not supposed to pretend you love them, but you're supposed to do what you do because you love them. And it's not hypocrisy, it's obedience to God. You don't pretend to love them even if you don't. You show them that you do love them. And that brings us to verse 8. The love that God requires now is not only new in emphasis, but it's new in example. Verse 8 says, again, a new commandment write I unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. So again, uh, a new commandment. The commandment of love is both old and new. It's old because John's readers have had it from the beginning of their Christian experience. From the time they first trusted Christ, they have had this commandment to love one another. It's new because in the unfolding of this Christian experience, it's developed new power, 
new meaning, new obligation, uh, a close correspondence with the fact that, that, that Christ's life with the, with the crowning ministry of all he has done on and after the cross with the facts built into the Christian life. See, to walk as Christ walked, okay, to do what verse 6 says do, is to put into practice that old commandment and make it new, is to love one another, but go above and beyond that then. Now it says which thing is true in him and in you. And you'll notice that there's a repetition here. It's in him and in you. It's not in him and you. All right? The grammar is very specific. Uh, uh, it, it, it implies that the, that, 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 that the love commandment finds its realization kind of separately here. First, it finds its realization in Christ. Okay? We love Christ because he first loved us. He first demonstrated his love for us. And then it does so in us as we walk even as he walked. We could say that uh, this thing is true in Christ and in us, but, but what is this thing? What is the fact that is true in Christ and in us? Well, the fact pointed out, the thing that is true in Christ, the thing that is true in us, is the paramount necessity of loving of loving one another, of loving Christ. It's a fact that hatred of one's brother while loving God is unworkable. It's untenable. It can't happen. You cannot love God and hate another believer. Can't do it. It doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work Verse 8 says, is because the darkness is past. The darkness is in the process of passing away. The picture is that the darkness of sin and unbelief is passing as a parade goes down the street. On the 4th of July, we're waiting for the parade to end so we can pass out the water bottles and meet people and invite them to church. Well, the parade has a beginning and it has an end. And if you're watching the parade someplace, uh, you're going to see that parade pass by and it's going to go on down the street. That's what's happening in your life the darkness is passing away all parades have an end and as you grow in Christ and in his love the further down the street the darkness goes the more you grow in Christ see in all the cases where the words not used of of, of physical darkness it means a moral insensibility to God's light his truth it means a moral blindness a moral stupidity if you will and the closer to Jesus you are the more like him you will be the light it says is already shining and the darkness is already passing by and the more our darkness is passed the light of the gospel the truth of God's word shines in us and the deeper then ought to be our subjection to the commandments of Jesus Christ the brighter the light shines, the more submitted and committed to keeping Christ's commandments we should be. Now that brings us to the third thing we're going to look at this morning. It's new in emphasis. It's new in example. It's also new in experience. This is verses 9, 10, and 11. Let's take them one at a time. 
Verse 9 says, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. This is the fifth time, right? The fifth time that John points out the possible inconsistency between profession and conduct. The fifth time he has said uh, that, that, that there's possible for people to say something and it not be true in their life for their protection, uh, for, for their profession to be inconsistent with the way they live because saying ain't doing. Now it says if he says it, he's in the light. We need to understand that there's no bridge here between light and darkness. There's, there's no connection with love and hatred, life and death, God and the world. Wherever spiritual life is, no matter how weak that spiritual life is, there darkness and death no longer reign. Love supplants hatred. Uh, Luke 9 verse 50 holds good then. It says, And Jesus said unto them, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Now, wherever life is not, wherever spiritual life doesn't exist, there, darkness, death, the flesh, the world, hatred, however glossed over or, or, or hidden from observation that might be, is going to prevail. Luke 11.23 then holds good. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. One commentary said, where love is not, there hatred is. For the heart cannot remain void. See, there's no neutral ground. If you are not actively loving, then you are hating and you're in darkness. The very title brother here is a reason why this love ought to be exercised. If we say we're in the light, we will prove it It'll be evidenced by us loving the brethren. See, people fail in two classes. Those who are in fellowship with God and therefore uh, walk in the light, and then they're walking in love. The other part that they fall into is those who are not in fellowship with God, and therefore they're walking in darkness and hatred. There's only two, really two kinds of people. There are saved people, and there are lost people. There are people walking in the light. There are people walking in darkness. There are people loving Christians, and there are people not loving Christians. And the warning is clearly intended for Christians. That's why the word brother is there. Can a Christian hate another Christian? Yes and no. All right? A Christian can commit singularly any sin an unbeliever can. But a Christian cannot continually hate another Christian cannot remain unforgiving, cannot refuse to forgive the trespass. To do so shows that they have never been a Christian. That's what the Word of God says. I looked for a way around it. It's not there. If you find a way around it, let me know. We as Christians can commit sins. We as Christians cannot continually live in sin. Now, no book in Scripture illustrates the blinding power of hatred the way the book of Esther does. Uh, 
and I encourage you to read it. It doesn't take very long. The events recorded take place in Persia, uh, where many of the Jews were living after the captivity. Haman, one of, king's, one of the king's chief men, had a, had a burning hatred for the Jews. The only way he could satisfy this hatred was to see the whole nation destroyed, and he tried to put a plot in motion. He plunged ahead with this plot, completely blind to the fact that the Jews would win, that he himself would be destroyed. He was hung on the very gallows he built to hang the Jews on. Hatred will destroy you. The literal translation of verse 9 goes like this. He who is saying that in the light he is, and his brother he is habitually hating, in the darkness is up to this moment. See, John was warning his readers against the spiritual danger that is very, very real for us. And he was affirming that a Christian who can hate his fellow Christian has not genuinely escaped from the darkness of, you know, the parade, the sin. To put it another way, he has uh, much to learn about God and cannot legitimately claim any intimate knowledge of Christ. If he really knew Christ as he ought, he would love his brother. Yes, something might happen that may momentarily create a hatred in his heart for his brother, but because of the love of Christ dwelling in him, he cannot abide it to stay, and he must offer forgiveness, and he must return to loving his brother. And if he does not, it proves he never was saved to begin with. It's impossible to be in fellowship with the Father and out of fellowship with another believer at the same time. It's one reason why God established the local church, I think, the fellowship of believers. So you can't be a believer alone. A person cannot live a complete and developing Christian life unless they are in fellowship both with God and with God's people. See, Jesus dealt with this matter on the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5, um, 21 to 26, where he says uh, that if you're coming to worship God and you remember that somebody has something against you, just, just leave your gift there by the altar and go get things right. Go reconcile. Then once things are reconciled, then come back and let's pick up this worship thing. It means that a gift on the altar, worshiping God is, 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 is valueless. God does not accept our worship if we as a worshiper have a dispute with another believer. Right? The worship cannot take place. Jesus does not say that the worshiper has something against his brother, but that a brother has something against him. There can be no worship unless there is reconciliation. So it's better don't try to worship when you know there's, there, there's something going on with you and another believer. Don't try to pretend it's not going to happen. You may fool everybody else. You're not going to fool God. Go make it right. Get it right. Then come back. So even when we have been offended, we should not wait for the one who has offended us to come to us. We should go to them. If we do not, Jesus warns us. Worship's not going to take place. Your relationship with God is going to be hindered. 
See, the only way to walk in the light, says chapter 1, verse 7, is to have fellowship with God, who is the light. So the claim to be in the light is nullified by hating your brother. When it says at the end of verse 9, even until now, up to this moment, in spite of, of the apparent increasing light and even his own boast of being in the light, no, this person is still in darkness. Now look at verse 10, where it says, He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. The love that the early Christians had for one another and for other people impressed the heathen. It impressed the Roman government. They couldn't abide it because, uh, of course, they wouldn't bow to their little political god Caesar, and that really upset the Caesars. Uh, but the Christians were known for loving other believers and loving the poor, taking such good care of the poor that the Roman government didn't know what to do. The Roman government would say that the Christians take better care of our poor than we do. The essence of the word love is that of a self-sacrificial love that gives of itself for the well-being of the one being loved. See, Christian love is not a shallow sentiment. It's not a passing emotion that, that we perhaps experience in a church service. No, Christian love is a Christian loving. It's a practical thing. It applies to everyday life. Just consider some of the one another's in the New Testament. And if you want to do a study that would, be, I think, be rather profitable, go through just the New Testament and write down all the things that, you know, all the one another's in scripture uh, you'll find that it's very practical uh, to, to, to love one another Jesus explains what this looks like here's, here's just a few of them in John 13 it's to wash one another's feet in Romans 12 it's to prefer one another in Romans 12 again it's be of the same mind one to another Judge not one another, Romans 14, and Romans 15 says receive or accept one another. Later in, in, in Romans 15, it's admonish or encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, edify, that's build up, encourage, lift up one another. Galatians 6, 2 is bear one another's burdens. Here's a real popular one, James 5, confess your faults one to another. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah. Confess your faults one to another. There's got to be some love and trust to do that, right? 1 Peter 4 says to be hospitable one to another. See, abiding in love is abiding in the light. And he who hates his brother is both a stumbling block to himself and they stumble against himself or themselves and uh, they stumble against everything inside and out of their life. Uh, and the word occasion of stumbling, that's the Greek word scandalon. Think of, a, think of a scandal. What it was was that movable stick or trigger on a, on a trap or a snare. It's an impediment placed in the way, uh, causing somebody to, to trip and to fall. Uh, 
with this kind of person here, there is, there is no occasion of stumbling, nothing to trip him up, nothing to make him fall. The one who loves as Christ loves, uh, he is walking in the light and he doesn't stumble because he can see where he's going. To love other Christians means to treat them the way God treats them, the way God treats us. Christian love that does not show itself in action and in attitude is bogus. It's got to change the way you think, and it's got to change what you do. Now, what happens to a believer who does not love the brethren if for some moment in time you you have a hardened heart we've seen the first tragic result is that they're in darkness although he probably thinks he's in the light he thinks he sees and actually he's blinded by the darkness of hatred this kind of person is the one who causes trouble in christian groups they think they're a spiritual giant they think they have great understanding when actually they're a babe with very little spiritual perception if they're saved at all He may read scripture faithfully, pray fervently, but if there's hatred in his heart, he's living a lie. The second tragic result is that if a believer is holding hatred in his heart, and again, the believer cannot hold hatred in his heart for an extended period of time, he's going to become a cause of stumbling. It's bad enough when an unloving believer hurts himself, it's... uh, but when he starts to hurt others, the situation is far more serious. And it is, it is serious to walk in darkness. It's dangerous to walk in darkness. It's dangerous to traverse unknown territory and not know where your feet are being planted. An unloving person stumbles himself and causes other people to stumble as well. You see, your sin always affects other people, not just you. And yes, your sin does affect you, but your sin always affects other people. Now that brings us to verse 11, which says, But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whether he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Why is God telling us this? Again, is God being mean? Is he, is, he, is, is he trying to trip us up? Is he trying to make our life miserable? No. He wants us in fellowship with him. He wants nothing to impede our relationship with him. So he is giving us every opportunity and all the information we need to check to see that we are in fellowship with him, that nothing is between us and him or us and another believer in Christ. Hatred is a sign of spiritual darkness. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness. And the word is, it marks his continuing state. Uh, he's never come out of the darkness. He, 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 when it says he walketh, that's his outward walk, the way he lives, his demeanor of life. Darkness is the home and the sphere of activity and the, and the blinding agent, one commentary says, of someone who hates his brother. The penalty for living in darkness is not merely that you don't see but that you go blind. You can't see the truth. For this person, darkness is at home. See, spiritual light is instilled by the Spirit of God, God, the Holy Spirit. One of the first fruits of 
the Holy Spirit is love. The first one on the list of the nine. He then who is possessed with malignancy towards another brother in Christ has to be destitute of the Spirit's work, walking in darkness. See, John, again, he doesn't recognize any neutral ground, uh, any, uh, any bridge, any connection between love and hatred. Love is active benevolence, and less than love is hatred. Just like indifference to the gospel is really paramount to rejection of the gospel. There's, again, no neutral ground. Well, I don't love them, but I don't really hate them either. Well, no, no. If you're not showing them love, you are showing them hate. Well, I love them. I just, uh, I just don't want to be around them. No, sorry. If you are not showing them love, you are showing them hate. That's the only choice that Scripture gives us. Where that darkness dwells, the mind, the judgment, the conscience will be darkened. A Christian who harbors hatred for a fellow Christian has lost all real sense of direction until they repent of that hatred and get it out of their life, uh, move back into Christ and begin loving their brothers again. It's like somebody wandering aimlessly in the dark. I mean, there are some grave dangers to doing that. And then in verse 11, when it says, hath blinded, this is a long-standing blindness. And I know throughout this message, we have bounced between calling the person saved and calling the person lost, because it depends on the length of time that the hatred exists in the heart. And here we're talking of somebody that is unsaved, because the when it says hath blinded, there, there's a long-standing blindness. The verb form is the same one used in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, to speak of the God of this age, Satan, who wants to keep men in bondage uh, from the illuminating power of the gospel by, by, by blinding them. Just as Satan blinds, hate blinds. Another commentary says, the tense blinded indicates a past, definite, decisive act When the darkness overtook the blinded, the blindness is no new state into which he has come. This person is, of course, an unsaved person professing Christianity. Habitually conducting oneself in the sphere of darkness is, is, is indicative, he says, of an unsaved state. Having never been in the light, he will never realize how great his blindness is. Having never seen, he will not comprehend his own blindness see love love does not live alone love produces joy that's the second on the list of the fruits of the spirit hatred makes a man miserable but love always brings him joy find me a miserable Christian and what you'll find is hate and bitterness and selfishness I'll show you something, share you something that Warren Wearsby said. He said, a Christian couple came to see a pastor because uh, their marriage was 
beginning to fall apart. We're both saved, the discouraged husband said, but we just aren't happy together. There's, there's, there's no joy in the home. As the pastor talked with them and they considered uh, together what the Bible has to say, one fact became clear that both the husband and the wife were, were nursing grudges. Each recalled the many annoying little things the other had done. If you two really loved each other, said the pastor, you wouldn't file these hurts away in your heart. Grudges fester in our hearts like an infected sore and poisons the whole system. Then he read, uh, 1 Corinthians 13:5, love thinketh no evil. And he explained, this means that love never keeps a record of things done that hurt us. When we truly love someone, our love covers their sins and helps to heal the wounds that they cause. Then he read 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all things, have fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover a multitude of sins. Before the couple left, the pastor counseled them, instead of keeping records of the things that hurt, start remembering the things that please. An unforgiving spirit always breeds poison, but a loving spirit that sees and remembers the, the best always produces health. With this, we're done. A Christian who walks in love always experiences some new joy because the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. And when we blend love and joy, what we get is peace. And peace helps produce patience. What is John wanting us, what is God wanting us to take away from this? Are we calling everybody saved? Are we calling everybody lost? No, no. But neither do we want to excuse anyone's sin. Walking in the light, walking in love is the secret if there is a secret to Christian growth. And it always begins with loving God and loving other believers. And since God wants you in fellowship with him, and he wants you in fellowship with other believers, he writes this for us so that we can know if I have hatred in my heart, my profession of faith is suspect. And he does that so that we must examine ourselves that we be in the household of faith. That we measure our profession by his standard. Because the tragedy of all tragedies is to go through life thinking that you can love God and hate people and then die in your sin, spending an eternity in hell thinking that you were okay. God doesn't want that for you. So he forces us to examine ourselves. Am I saying that I love God? But am I hating other Christians? Then there's something horribly, terribly wrong that needs to get fixed. And what God wants you to do then is get it fixed. 
Repent of your sin. Come back into fellowship with God. Or repent of your sin and trust Jesus to save you and you'll be in fellowship with God. That's what he wants. That is his heart's desire. How do you know? How's your love? Let me leave you with that. How is your love? Stand with me and let's pray. Father, we do want to thank you for your love for us. We only ever love you because you first loved us and you demonstrated that love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Father, I pray that your spirit would work in us, Lord, to um, help us examine ourselves. Lord, our heart's deceitful and desperately wicked. We'll lie to ourselves and we'll convince ourselves of things that aren't true. We need the spirit of truth to strip away all our lies. And Father, I pray that that you'll work in us simply to, 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 to form Christ in us. That we, that we either repent of our sin and come back into fellowship with you or we, we get saved and enter fellowship with you. But Lord, it's all so that we can be in fellowship with you. So Lord, please do in us that which we are not capable of doing ourselves an honest examination. Lord, we thank you for for your tenacity, for your um, for your determination to have us in fellowship with you. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Keith, would you come ahead?